shave the goat and we are ready. We're just waiting on the on the crystals to get here. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Related to Geeks podcast. We are back again, as we always are, on the first Monday of every month at Tinker's Tavern. And tonight we have several here hanging out with us. We're going to be talking about board games. But before we do that, we're going to talk about our geek agendas. And I'm going to have Dad start us off because he's probably the most prepared out of any of us. So prepared because school makes you that way. Yeah, I'm back in school, and I've been uh, definitely geeking out on the music composition, uh, working on two jazz pieces, and then in my composition class, I'm doing a melody a day. So um, that's exciting. You and your doing a thing a day yeah, history. <laughs> Videos a day. I'm a, I'm a fan of it, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty really? good about getting out of bed every day. I've <laughs> 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 got that one down. <laughs> Rarely definitely do done a photo a day and journal every day. So, so your your composition every day. What does that entail? Melody a day or whatever. Yeah, I just I have to write a melody, and it's all self-imposed, and I write it with pencil at the piano. So okay. I just. You know, and it might take 10 minutes or it might take an hour, you know. So is there a length you're trying to achieve or does that not matter either? No. No length, no specific quality. I just have to write a melody. Yeah. There's, yeah. Some, no there's something similar in writing um, that I need to adopt uh, called, I think it's just called Don't Break the Chain. And the idea is that every day you sit down and even if you just stare at the screen with your what you've been writing for a few minutes that still kind of counts but it's just spend a little bit of time with your writing every day and then you get to x out that day on the calendar and that creates a chain and so you don't want any blank spaces you want every space to have an x so it doesn't really matter about trying to get a quality thing done every day it's just doing it every day to keep yourself yeah. active yeah just playing games with yourself and uh, and keeping it going that way. Yeah. I, I give myself a gold star every day. <laughs> you, you do great. <laughs> but I have always felt that, you know, the pot a day thing is, uh, it really means, you know, almost every day. <laughs> Sometimes. You don't want to go a week, yeah. you know, but you don't want to go two days, really. But if you miss a day, it ain't the end of the world. When you're doing an everyday thing. I did a challenge last year where I um, cross-stitched on the same piece every day for supposedly 90 days. And I think I made it to about 75. And then life got overwhelming. So I got 70, <laughs> but 75 days on the same piece, at least one stitch a day. That's something. So, <laughs> And usually it wasn't one stitch. Usually it was like 100 to 200 stitch. So yeah. you actually got progress with that. But yeah, that's interesting. I like I like I like the daily challenges like you do because it keeps me motivated. Okay, let's go on to Alan. He's our he's our newbie to this podcast, so we're gonna put him on the spot, but not at the front end because apparently he's had bad experiences with that. Um, so <laughs> what what what's what's your what's your geek agenda, Alan? Oh, hi everybody. Um, <clears throat> well, I publish my own tabletop role-playing game called the Chronicles of Ember, 
and like three people have heard of it. So I'm, I'm getting better. And <laughs> right well, now, all three of us have heard of it. So I'm assuming that you're, you're giving at least three. Notes. Yeah. At least us three here. 100% of the people in this chat has heard about it. Just think of that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> I'm currently trying to support this with, um, with new content. You can't just put out the, player's guide and say here go nuts and hope everything does well so i am working on a adventure that i intend to publish on drive through rpg right now entitled cookie a horror story and it is something that larry has played with um and we've actually recorded a podcast of it in progress uh go ahead and throw the the cover art up it's whimsical and it's a bit of a mess. Larry can tell you more about it, and I'd rather that he did if anyone did. Uh, <laughs> and I'll go ahead and I'll throw some links up in the uh, in the Discord chat here if anybody wants to come along and take a look and maybe throw a couple of bucks that they're not needing my way on Patreon. That would be awesome. Um, I also accept most major credit cards and uh, food stamps. <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> um, yeah, oh yeah i'll do bitcoin i'll figure out a way to make that work <laughs> i've also got my own uh own patreon or ah, own uh discord channel if anybody wants to uh uh join in there we're always glad to have new people yeah and he plays um uh, actual play on a more or less weekly basis on your more or less. channel more or less weekly and whenever I'm not swamped, I try to make a way for everybody to get together and have a game uh, that anybody can get in. Just, you know, just dive in. I don't want like 80 people there, but uh, <laughs> if you decide you want to check it out, uh, yeah, we uh, we try to have a game on Discord about once a week at least. Back to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cookie, Cookie is, not to give it away, but Cookie is one of those fantasy modules that... Partway through, you realize you're actually in a Doctor Who episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a bit of a mind bender, and it's still not completely done right now. It's good enough for me to run, but it's probably not good enough for someone else to run. And I'm putting the last bits of polish on it right now. I intend to have it done before the eventual heat death of the universe and get that out on, uh, get that out on uh, DriveThru RPG. Cool. Um, mine's lame, so I'm going to get mine out of the way so Sarah can also <laughs> like, probably add a lame one because she didn't even have one. Um, <laughs> we're going to finish this off with a bang before we get into our topic. Sarah's going to be very good at our topic. Um, the only geek agenda thing that I can think of right now is the fact that I have been re-watching through Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is my favorite show of all time, and I mean that of all time. It will remain that until the day I die. Um, but I've been doing a more thorough rewatch and like analyzing it a bit more than I've ever done in the past. And I'm, I'm just proud that my little 12, 11-year-old self found that show and decided to watch it all at that time of my life to where it would make that lasting impact because that is a quality show and holds up surprisingly well, even with some of the the issues that came out of the the 90sness of it um it's just a really well put together show and i've enjoyed going through it again and there's surprisingly a lot of people there's like as much as we're we're going to talk about the resurgence of board games there's kind of been a resurgence of the buffy fandom um cuz i think a lot of people are in a similar situation to me where they're 
they watched it in their adolescence and now they're they're returning to it and want to talk about it more and more. So there's a pretty interesting online community surrounding Buffy as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I've been doing and been having a lot of fun with. So when Leah's mother was about the same age as Megan was when she discovered it, we started watching through Buffy. And I think we made it through three or so seasons of it. And she's been saying again that she needs to restart it and watch through. So you may have somebody to, to share that fandom with you pretty soon. Outside Boy. Of, you know, online discussions. Because, you know, That'll be one thing I'll actually be able to keep up with Liz at, too. She tends to, when she gets into a fandom, she really gets into it. And it's like, it's something that I watched 20 years ago. And then she wants to talk about all of the intricacies of it. And I'm just like, I don't even remember the main character's name, but. I can keep up with her on Buffy, so she needs to get on that. I'll, I'll let her know. <laughs> Still be excited. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm pretty sure the main character's name is Buffy, but I think I lost something somewhere. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, Sarah. What's your fabulous okay, so. geek agenda? <laughs> so, so Megan just thought hers was lame. I've been rearranging. <laughs> we have a room. <laughs> We have a room that is an office slash game room slash craft room slash um, everything gets thrown into it that we don't know where else to put it. And um, <laughs> we kind of got tired of it. So <laughs> my daughter and I have been uh, whittling away at trying to make it a usable space again because it just shelves upon shelves of stacks of stuff. Um, kind of organized that we could maybe find the things we were looking for unless it was an airbrush um, which is really what caused this is my husband um bought legion which is a star wars miniature game and was getting ready to um prime it so he could paint it and his airbrush had disappeared um and we searched high and low and everything and it ended up yeah i guess he had stuck it either on my daughter's computer desk or on top of her computer because it was down behind her computer it took us like a week and a half to discover this so, because, you know, that's not one of the places you look for an airbrush. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, we um, we decided that maybe it was time to, to, to remove some of the stacks from this room. So we're going to be going through, I think our next big thing is going through, speaking of board games, our board games, and, and trying to figure out what are the most important for us to have out on our shelves and what need to go in, in totes to put in a closet for events and stuff because we do um run events that we use some of the games that maybe we don't play as a family that much but would be nice to have access to for those so that's going to be our next big job in here <laughs> so not not exciting but necessary just so you know sarah i find organization very exciting it's one <laughs> of my favorite things to do <laughs> I like I'm it also I'm way. also a strange person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I spend a lot of time organizing. I'm just not super great at it, obviously. <laughs> I believe in the positive power of procrastination. Sometimes I get procrastinated on some job so hard I end up cleaning my office. Wow. <laughs> well, let's not get crazy now. <laughs> All right, are we ready to get into this? Uh, the meat of this episode says the vegan. Um, <laughs> uh, the resurgence, the resurgence of board games, um, was the topic that me and Dad discussed yesterday, and think we knew what we were talking about as far as a topic. 
But uh, Sarah, my understanding, and you are far more educated in this, is that there there definitely has been um, a a massive growth within the last twenty or so years of board game population. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was something that a lot of, especially people who uh, were playing board games before that time, don't realize. And uh, we've had experience of introducing people to this crazy board game community and how much has happened in this last little bit. Um, but that's our general topic. It can very likely veer off because that's how we do things here. But um, I'm going to let you maybe just touch base on some history of it because, like I said, you you definitely are the more educated when it comes to this idea of this resurgence. So. Yeah. Well, and that's weird for me because I never stopped playing board games. Like, you know, it wasn't like I played key games as a kid and then I stopped and then 10, 15 years later discovered these games that were coming over from Europe that everybody got so excited about. Mm -hmm. I didn't stop playing games. Now I was playing still the games that you typically bought at your, you know, mass market, big box stores and all of that stuff. But, um, you know, even when I was... I had moved away from home. I was working um, in theater. I was playing a lot of party games like Outburst and um, Tribond and stuff like that at that point. Um, and and so I never I never stopped playing. And then I, I got married to um, someone who was very much like me that he he grew up playing games and he kept playing games with his family and friends and and so we never really noticed that this thing was really happening <laughs> um, but you know I think a lot of people attribute this kind of resurgence um, specifically to Catan which was when it was published known as the Settlers of Catan and um, this this game that came over to the states from Germany that, that caused a huge splash over here now it was published in like 94 I think um, I yeah. didn't hear of it until like 2002. So like, I didn't even know it existed. Um, you know, I was aware of things like magic when it first came out, but I was not aware of, of Catan until many years later. And actually it was my husband that introduced me to it. And we still probably five years before we played it. So <laughs> I can't really speak to that part of it, <laughs> but I do know that that is one of the games that is really highly attributed to that kind of introduction of european board games into the u.s market well and i will say i i did mention that fact that you were kind of playing board games throughout and i i was definitely one of those that i played some board games when i was younger and then um in my like high school years i focused more on video games and then i played some miniature games and rpgs and stuff but um it was definitely probably for me within the last 10 years that I really started getting back into board games. Um, much, much of that goes to yours and Kier's credit and your enthusiasm around the hobby. But it is, it's kind of one of those things where once you discover it and realize how much is out there, um, it becomes like it, it, it scratches that same like collector's itch from people who like to collect figures or collect 
um, display pieces because the the board games themselves are attractive. You know, they're they've got great yeah. box design, great components, and stuff like that. But there's an added level of being able to actually play them. Um, and I've seen that again and again. Once people get into this hobby, they start amassing these large collections of board games. Uh, and you just and I've, I've noticed that it, it it always seems to happen in the same way too. Is you start playing, you're like, that's great. And then you start buying all of these games that you can find like on clearance and cheap and you know, uh -huh. people getting rid of used games. And then you like you start discovering the games you really like, and then you start just kind of honing your focus in on those. And then you start learning about the stuff coming down the pike. So you're like super ready for these new games and you're doing Kickstarters. And it's just like I, so many people I know follows that followed that same trajectory. And and Devin and I absolutely did. We thrift shopped and we um, you know, would would go to Target or Walmart and find what was on clearance and, you know, and, and would play those games. And then we would hear about a game coming out and be like, oh, well, that sounds like fun. So we would start going, oh, well, this is yeah. definitely a type of game that I enjoy. So I need to do that. And then, like I said, um, we, we got to live in places with game stores and that's a whole other um, fun experience. So... Um, but yeah, yeah. So I've known so many people that follow that trajectory of, oh my gosh, all of this amazing stuff is out there that does things so differently than they did when I was a kid. Well, and another thing is, I mean, we use the term resurgence and I don't think that's a bad term to use in this context, but truth be told, when I think about the board games that are like the childhood standard board games, there's like 10 to 20 board games that come to mind and a lot of people maybe had five board games in their house um and what is actually happening here with with modern board games and its popularity just like with any other media or any other form of entertainment that's out there is it's it's growing at such an exponential rate that you you really can't keep up with it um and so people have these collections of hundreds of board games it's not just like oh, there's a new wave of, you know, 10 to 20 games that are popular. There are games being released constantly, and uh, yeah. it's it's growing rapidly as well. And we have we have a collection of over three, and I will say maybe five of these are games that we had as kids. So, you know, like we have, Devin has a couple of his games that he brought from home. Um, we have Clue. I have Rummy Cube. Um, let me see Scotland Yard, Advanced to Boardwalk. I mean, they're just kind of like those nostalgia games that that we've kept, and that's about it. Like you know, we just don't have like a whole bunch of those games that we have. We used to. I mean, even even when Devin and I first got married, we had a collection of probably a hundred mass market games. We had a large collection then, because as I said, we were both gamers that never stopped gaming. But the the collections changed a lot. So did you say 300 games? Yeah, about that. Yeah, it kind of cut out on for me for a second, so. No, okay. That's what yeah. I thought. That's what I thought you'd said. I just double checking on yeah. myself. Uh, and that's more than 20 years of amassing games. So I mean, that's Devin and I have been married for almost 20 years, and then we we both brought games into the relationship. So, uh, <laughs> and we have a daughter who also yeah. collects games. So, yeah. and that, even I'm counting me, her games in. I'm counting her games in with this too. Even me, who's been pretty frugal and also ruthless of uh, um, getting rid of games, as I realize that they're not ones that I'm going to play regularly, 
I still have probably about 60 games in my collection, um, which it's just easy to do because they're yeah. so different, even though they're all kind of a little bit the same sometimes, um, especially if you have a, a specific genre or mechanic that you like. But there's always that different tweak or that different style or those different components that get you excited to play With that, that game. different theme. Or, yeah, I mean, I mean, some people are super theme driven. I'm not one of those, but you know, have two games that play very similarly with different themes and it feels like a different game. Um if that's what your your motivation is. Well, sir, I'm really glad that you mentioned Catan because I played Catan. I played it with Coulter at the church game day. And I, you know, I, yeah, kinda, it's an I got it. Game. I mean, I I didn't really get it at first, but I got it by the time I played once through, you know. And it's that's a pretty how, cool that's resource game, management. So. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like as many games as I've played and as many mechanics as I've seen, it always takes me a game or at least a few rounds of a game before I really quite understand how everything works. Yeah. So, and then, and, and then, I'm talking then about you're, just rules then you're just still I'm strategizing. About. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. I, say, I'm not. I don't understand strategy oh. at all. <laughs> Hello, Carl. Hello, everybody. How are you? Hey, doing? how's it going, man? Hey, we're doing, man. We're doing. Hey, hey, Alan. I can I can name some of the other games that kind of have that kind of entry level modern board game instant classic sort of thing. Other than Catan, um, there is Carcassonne, which was a tile laying game um, that came out a couple of years after Catan, um, and you basically would put a tile down and then. Um, you would score points at the end of the game based on how those tiles were all laid out and where your workers or meeples were on the board. Um, and then um, Ticket to Ride, which was 2000, mid-2000, 2004, I think, is when it released. And, I, I mean, it's it's one of those that is now available in, and all of these games I now, I think you can get at, like, Target and Walmart in addition to like board game stores and stuff, but that was not always the case. That's a fairly new development like within the last five years or so. Um, Pandemic, which is a cooperative game, is another one that gets that kind of, you know, easy to teach and easy to get people into and, and modern classic. So I would say those four are really the, the big ones, but there's so many more that are, that would fall into that same ease of play and, ability to learn but for whatever reason those four just really took off well it's definitely i feel thinking back to starting out and seeing other people trying it for the first time it's definitely intimidating because a lot of people haven't played board games in such a long time and are so stuck on the mechanics that they're used to that it becomes a uh a, a difficult thing to figure out this entry point. And also board games suffer that fatal flaw of having a whole lot of terminology that is specific to board games. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is hard to enter like into that hobby with none of that knowledge and not having people to kind of guide you along. Yeah. Cause I just said tile laying and you don't necessarily know what tile laying means. I mean, that's just a, and it's a thing that I know I do sometimes is I'll say a, a term because it's so, so used in, in that specific way that I don't always think about, does everybody understand what I mean 
when I well, say Kyle Way. Then I'm the guy you need to bounce stuff off of. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you said Ty Lang, and I'm thinking, okay, I've got to pay Julio for the job in the bathroom, and it's just not exactly yeah, what. No, it's yeah. just uh, basically you'll have chipboard tiles, and you place down a tile on your tarp right. um, in a pattern. Um, and I, I'm trying to think. I mean, in a way, Scrabble's kind of a tile laying game, so it's just your tiles have yeah, to be laid. Dominoes. Yeah. Yeah, Scrabble. Yeah, Scrabble has tiles, but Domino's is a uh, more. But there's a whole bunch of them. How's huh? our tile laying games? Some people. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Some yeah. people just love their tile laying games. Yeah, and I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. Um, and do you think Zero is one of my all-time favorite tile laying games? And it is an abstract strategy game where you've got little dragons that you are. People are putting down a tile, and then everybody with the dragon that leads into that tile moves onto that tile or past it, depending on how it lines up. And it is amazing, and it plays it plays quick, and it's easy to learn, um, and it plays a lot of people. I think it plays eight people. Um, one of my favorite tile laying games. So, do you think um, anyone in the tile laying games ever goes on to do mosaics or stained glass or? I mean, I know. definitely could see it would be. Uh, Speaking of which, there is a game called Azul <laughs> that is based off a of stained glass. Oh, that really? is a tile laying game. Oh. Yeah, and it's it's a really great game. Megan has it, I think. I do. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's more you're you're laying on your own personal spaces as opposed to building out a big thing in the middle. And those are I mean different ways i mean you know obviously scrabble you've got like a shared board quirkle is another one that's very scrabble like except it's with colors and images um and but everybody's got a shared space that they're building onto where and same thing with Suro. um but things like um what did i just say azul just, azul uh -huh. you've got your own space <clears throat> that you're, you're laying out so you make well, your own window. It's not cooperative. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's abstract strategy, too. So, okay. I mean, an abstract strategy. The most famous abstract strategy game is chess. Um, and it just basically means that... Um, I don't know if I even know how to describe abstract strategy. It's just one that... It's a word that I know and I know how to use, but it's harder to describe. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, as far as tile laying games go, whatever happened to Kier's game Hydras? I know that he developed that for a long time to the point that he just got sick of looking at it and it, it went away. I never heard it, another word out of it. As far as I know, it's still available as a print and play on Board Game Geek. Um, but I don't, I don't know if he's still developing it. Do you know, Carl? Has he mentioned it to you? I don't believe he is uh, looking to, like, put that into any type of official production. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, too. But I do believe it's still available on, on Board Game Geek as a print and play. It's a good well, game. I, it's it's fun. Yeah, I thought I'm I'd chill for him anyway. <laughs> um, I think I've played it all of one time. So, and it was a long time ago. I've played it several times under several different rule sets. I think he. And I think I he think kept making the rules late. more complicated, and it didn't really help the game. I think I played it later into the into the development of it. So, 
talking about different uh, terminology that applies to board games. Um, this is this is perhaps one of my favorite types of board games or board game mechanics, um, and I think it would also be appealing to RPG players is dice manipulation which is a dice game. You roll dice, but you also have mechanics built into the game that allow you to re-roll or change values or swap sides or do different things with your dice to give you some control over the random roll. And uh, there's a lot of different games that have this. There's also Role Player, which is a dice manipulation game that you build a uh, a character sheet, basically. You you It's building your character for an RPG, the game. Um, and it's a lot of fun and I think has a lot of overlap potential for just the fun quirks and inside references. But, uh, for me, I think that's, that's a, that's a possible gateway for RPG players that, uh, may not be a great gateway for people who just don't do tabletop gaming at all. But for people who have experience with RPGs, I think dice manipulation might be a fun way to go for them. Yeah, and that game specifically, role player, um, you're you're dealing with some as a as an RPG player, you'd be dealing with some of the terminology that that you would already know. Whereas maybe somebody who even played board games but don't play RPGs would be like, "What is this stat stuff you're talking about?" Or you know, what's a you know what's a cleric gonna do for me in this game or what it have? So, um. I enjoy role player a lot. So I came in late. Have you all talked about the best board game ever yet? Uh, If I'm assuming what you're going to say correctly, then no. Okay. Well, we got to talk about the best board game ever. Is Megan the only one that knows what the best board game ever is? Hold on. I think I've heard of the publisher. (laughs) I know the... um... I know the most popular board game in the world. No, no, no. no. That has nothing to do with it. (laughs) This is purely subjective, sir. (laughs) I I don't care what everybody else likes. It doesn't matter what My subjective opinion is so strong that it is objectively correct. (laughs) Yeah. And it's backed up by a fantastic YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> the best board game ever is Hero Quest. I knew you were going to say that, but I didn't want to say it. <laughs> she didn't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> so, I have played Hero Quest. Um, I, I do not agree that it is the best board game ever. Uh, <laughs> My favorite part about Hero Quest, it is the most unbalanced piece of, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I would argue it's not even, I'm cheating here, it's not really even a board game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it is. It is. It is, it is a role play. Uh, I mean, for sure. Uno is it a is. board game. So. <laughs> well, right. it, is a, it is a board game in the same way that D&D is a board game. So, uh, I would say it's it's a dungeon crawler, which is classified as a board game. Mm-hmm. But Mill and Bradley, when uh, they released it, actually, um, when they put out their what is that thing called the mailer when they're trying to get customer information and trying to say what you think of this game that like the uh, insert card things that they put in yeah. like magazines and stuff. 
right like a <laughs> customer survey or whatever yeah. purchaser survey um they ask what other role-playing games have you played so even even milton bradley was thinking of it in terms of a role-playing game during uh that's interesting design yeah yeah uh, now obviously it has a board um but right. i mean you know if i put down my dwarven forge and play basic D D, it's really not that different from hero quest <laughs> you know it's, it's yeah. really not that 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 but you know, with Hero Quest, you're not, you're not, I mean, you're really not role playing unless you decide to do that. I mean, that's not in the right. rules, is it? I've never but played it that way. That's also anyway, true so. of BXD&D. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, BXD&D, so. yeah, BXD&D is really the, the meat and potatoes of it is dungeon exploration. Um, Okay. Uh, and, and wilderness exploration, but like role playing is an afterthought. There are no mechanics for it really, other than like reaction roles, which you could argue uh, to some extent exists in Hero Quest for certain monsters. But it's it, but the point I'm trying to make is um, I don't know a lot about board games, but <laughs> <laughs> but he knows about Hero. I do know a lot about Hero Quest, <laughs> and it was the genesis of of my entire. Not maybe not my entire, but it, I mean, I I remember as a nine year old seeing the commercial for Hero Quest, and it threatened to turn me into a goblin. And something in my nine year old brain said, "Yeah, I want to be turned into a goblin. Can we please get this?" Um, and so we got Hero Quest for uh, uh, my my tenth birthday, and we all played it. And then Dad was like, "Well, let's play D and D instead because mm -hmm. this is straight garbage." <laughs> <laughs> and Carl's, not Carl's an been a goblin ever since. As tightly wound as like D and D can be, um, but it was still uh, uh, immensely enjoyable for Kier and me. Uh, and Megan uh, plays it as well. Um, she was very young <clears> when we first started playing it. That's why I'm, I'm not trying to exclude Megan at all from this conversation. It was just she was very young she when okay. we first started playing it. Um, uh, but yeah, like. To me, even yeah, though I know objectively it's not the best board game ever, it's the thing that I attach mentally to my getting into Dungeons and Dragons and becoming kind of this gamer person that I've become, even though that would have happened regardless. Like, there was nothing that was going to stop that. <laughs> it was just it was the momentum, the downward momentum for that happening was too great. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, it's because of Hero Quest. That's really, you know, that's neither here nor there. I mean, it would have happened either way. But it's just my first experience of naming a, a character and, and picking to be the elf and giving it a name and then running it through a dungeon and fighting monsters. So I, within the last few years, ran an actual campaign of Hero Quest and went through all of the maps and stuff and quickly learned that the heroes get so incredibly OP in that game mm -hmm. um, that I had to constantly figure out ways to make it more challenging. And I had to add extra enemies and add extra spells and stuff just to make it somewhat of a challenge to get him through the maps, um, which was never something that I expected because... The notorious thing about that game is that the very first map that it suggests you play is brutal compared to what it actually is from a campaign to campaign. A like, after that, each map is just, it starts off pretty easy, and it 
progresses a little bit, but it it doesn't really get so hard that the heroes don't have that guaranteed victory. It feels like, like yeah, I was happy. I, I think that's a little by design, but it is kind of like a D and D campaign that never gets above like level three monster. You know, <laughs> I mean, because the problem is, while there isn't leveling in Hero Quest, there is a whole lot of magical items that you find that kind of. Uh, produce this uh, kind of leveling effect. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it's <clears> kind <throat> of like if you were a fifth level fighter in Dungeons and Dragons and they were like, and here are some more orcs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were no longer scared. So I had to start doing stuff to make them scared um, and actually strategize and not just go in and wipe everything out because they were sitting on eight healing potions and it didn't really matter. <laughs> So, um, speaking of HeroQuest and gaming resurgence, there's actually a company that's called Restoration Games that takes a lot of those older games from, like, the 70s, 80s, 90s and rework them and are re-releasing them, like, one or two a year sort of thing. So, like, um, Fireball Island got released last year, I believe it was, um, with some new rules and, and stuff, um, to make it a little bit less of just a roll and move game as the, the first one was, but it still has the the rolling boulder that comes down and all of that stuff that people really liked about Fireball Island. Dark Tower, I believe, is being re-released soon. Mm-hmm. Um, Downforce, which is a racing game, and I don't believe that was the original name of the game. I do believe they renamed that one, but that's a that's an interesting like. I I kind of hesitate to call it a racing game. It's more of a betting game like you're trying to make sure that your cars that you have the cards for are going to win um and other people are also trying to maybe get like somebody at the at the table may also be trying to get that car to win so um it's an interesting one so yeah i i just thought i would throw that in because it kind of falls into that same thing we were talking about like board game resurgence um and some of the older games out there that are being done. Well, your talk of Hero Quest reminded me of that. What I will say, specifically talking about board game resurgence, is that I feel like there's a lot more public awareness to board games now, to the growing popularity, and to the you know, I I always crack up because it used to be a rare treat when I would watch a YouTuber or watch a, a show on television and see that they had a stack of board games in the back uh, ground of the, of the set that design or whatever. And now it's like fairly common. It's almost like bookshelves. It's just something that you kind of naturally include in a lot of stuff to, sh- to, to show that it's a, it's a lived in place. There's this uh, thing that's happened where I, used to say, oh, I'm part of a board game group, and they'd ask what kind of games I play, and then I'd automatically be like, oh, gosh, I'm going to name a bunch of games that they've never heard of. But now I can, not only those old standards like Catan and and Ticket to Ride, but I can start with those, and then they can throw some games back at me that I'm just like, wow, I would have never thought that just this random conversation would have led to us talking about uh, you know, some of these more, what I what I think of as in-community games, you know. It's exciting because the, the public perception of board games 
um, as being something that's either just for kids or just for parents to play with their kids as a as a family night type thing. We have, I mean, in our area, we have a couple of board game stores and we have like a board game lounge thing. And we didn't really have any of that five years ago, I feel like. So, yeah, no. Well, I would like to jump in here and say that as long as I remember having things to buy, a board game was always there. You went to the toy section and you just had boxes and boxes of of various games and the even the game that shall not be named the family destroying simulator um to teach you about the evils of capitalism you know the one i'm talking about and there were other games like <clears throat> uh, that had little gimmicks uh like the Bingo thing with the bubble yeah <laughs> the very same and there were little gimmicks that you could push down and it would uh, roll the die and little pop bubble for you and, and various other things and things like mousetrap and whatnot. But is it so much that there's been a resurgence in the popularity of them with the players? Or is it so much that the developers are starting to smell a market driven by the internet and the sharing of information that we just did not have prior to 1994? I think it's probably a combination. Um, but I think games have gotten better, um, mm-hmm. and that's a big part of it, and that, that obviously comes down to the designers designing better games, and and I think even so much, you know, that there's a whole, it's easier for designers to network with other designers and make their games better now. I don't know um, if I can agree with that, because HeroQuest came out in 1989, and it's the best game ever. <laughs> <laughs> I am detecting a theme. So, <laughs> so the obvious answer to me of why we have this resurgence and why we have this, this growing popularity in, in this is that kids that did, you know, play life or the games that should not be named or trouble or sorry, or those, those standard games, there's a lot of people that enjoyed that. And really carried that as long as they could, but they wanted something more. And then they start designing games and making their own games and getting more and more clever with it. And that inspires other people to do so. So, so it's it's for the people like Sarah and her family that never really stopped playing games that kept it going to where they they kept developing more and more uh, mechanics and different different approaches to game design. And because of that, we get all of these cool board games and you know it's it's gonna continue to grow as the kids that grew up on this batch of board games get to the age where they're ready to start designing and developing their own board games and they're gonna come up with a whole nother wave of cool awesome ideas that this generation never would have thought of or didn't have the the tech to do so you know what i think might be a driving force in that with the crowdfunding and crowdsourcing and everybody being able, it's it's more like the wild west of gaming right now. Mm-hmm. There, I have ran into more games of more types in the last ten years than it, it's just it, it's insane the number of things that happen. And I believe that's because we do not have corporate gatekeepers anymore to the degree with the stranglehold that they've had. Before, if you had a game idea and you went to the head honcho in the top office and said, hey, I want to pitch my game at you. If he had a bad day that morning, he might tell you to get out and you would never get anywhere else with it. Um, If he thought it was good, then the boys on the board vote on it. And if they thought it was sanitary enough, then and only then would they buy the rights for your game 
for way less than what it's worth and make a uh, make a fortune on it. Is this going to be a million dollar game? If it's not, we don't want to deal with it. But now you have these smaller people that are able to take those risks, absorb those risks, and the distribution model has changed. We have things like drive through RPG for other games. We have <clears throat> we have factory, we have Kickstarters. You can get just about anything made and and throw it out there and see, you know, throw the pot of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. I think that it's become a more democratic process as opposed to the gatekeepers. And that's what's bringing more variety to, uh, <laughs> no pun intended, the table. Or I could be wrong. What do you think? I mean, I think that that definitely plays a part. I mean, self-publishing was would have been harder and a lot smaller in, say, 1984 than it is now. Um, like, you could probably self-publish a game and put it in an ad in a in the back of a magazine or something like that which most people don't see um mm -hmm. and with with the advent of things like kickstarter and social media platforms to advertise on self-publishing has become a whole lot easier um and less less risky because you can get an idea of how many people are actually interested in it on a lar much larger scale than you could have in in the days before the internet. I ran into and, a fellow where that went. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, as I say, you didn't have to go through one of the major, major um, players. Well, the risks still can get you. I ran into a fellow oh, at, yeah. the last, at the last game day. I don't remember his name, but this gentleman, uh, I asked him if he had made, uh, done his own game, and he said, yeah, I've made a game, or I've made 950, depending on how you count. And I asked him what he meant. He said that he had developed this board game where you had a board floating on a central pivot, and you just put letters on this to spell where it's kind of like Scrabble in 3D, and you didn't want the board to ever touch the touch the table. If it did that, then you know that was a loss. You're not, it's kind of like Jenga meets Scrabble. It's a really interesting concept. And he ordered four pallets full of this game. And he has not been able to sell a single copy. And, oh, my heart went out to him. It was just, you know, he absorbed all the risk on this and it hit him right in the face. This is what publishers are supposed to protect you from. You know, they're big enough to handle that. Mm -hmm. And, man, that was, it was a horrible sob story. I heard him tell one guy, well, if you want a copy, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I've got so many, they're everywhere. Um I hope that works out for him, but it, that is a that is a risk to trying to do self publishing. Yeah, and I think I think doing market research before you self publish is, um, and that's that, and I think that becomes easier with things like the like I said with with social media and stuff, or even you know throw it up on Kickstarter and you get the money. Hopefully, if you did the math right, you get the money in advance. Mm -hmm. that's that's a that's a that's another problem that i don't know that we need to go into <laughs> oh, wow. yeah the truth is any business venture has risks and and requires yeah. a certain amount of research and know-how no matter what way you approach it because there's definitely yeah. i mean on the flip side there's definitely ways that you can get burned going with a publisher and then getting a fraction of a percent you know of the mm -hmm. profits if you do it wrong and the publisher just makes all the money um 
But yeah, that's oh, wow. a whole nother layer of, of board game <laughs> industry that <laughs> gets super complicated. Yeah. And I'm not. And, and honestly, one that I don't know yeah. a lot about. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. Game is not on my, not on my to do list. <laughs> well, I mean, he gave me a long list of everything not to do, but. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a I have a question for uh, Sarah and Megan as uh Megan and I were talking about this when we were first discussing this topic. Um, uh, a lot of these games are quite expensive. $60 is not unusual. And um, so um, what are some of the newer games with the more interesting uh, mechanics and ideas um, that you can get at a more reasonable price? So Forbidden Island was the first one that I thought of. Because you yeah, can really get Island, that. You can often get it for like ten, ten to fifteen dollars, um, and it's it's a good one. I mentioned Pandemic earlier. It is by the same designer that did Pandemic, um, but it's like a lighter kids' version of it. It's still cooperative. Everybody's working together, which makes it a really great family game. Because then, if if one person loses, everybody loses. The game wins. So that's that's sometimes a little easier when you've got younger kids. Um, and there's not a lot of reading, and anything that is reading is public information. So that's another thing. You don't have, actually have to be able to read to play it. Um, and and like I said, I think it retails for 20 and you can often get it on sale for 10 to $15. Love Letter comes to mind. Yeah, it's Love Letter is a $10 game. I mean, if you just get the, the base, like, in the bag... Because it'll come in like a little velvet pouch. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's but, another unit, super cheap, in that same vein with it has interesting mechanics that you weren't necessarily used to in board games as Werewolf, which is a print and play game. I mean, if you just Google Werewolf cards. Yeah. And there's some there's some interesting, you know. Um, I'm going to talk about a game that... that would have a higher retail price. I think it probably retails for about 50, but Castles of Burgundy, it's not necessarily an intro level game, um, but you can often get it for like 20 to $25 on Amazon. I think the copy that I got, um, well, I was a gift, but I really want to say it was probably, I think it, it was like 20, $20 because they put it on those like Amazon big clearance, not big clearance, but big board game sales often. And it's, um, it's got a lot of moving pieces, and it's a dice manipulation game like Megan was talking about, where you've got all of these options of... It's a tile-laying game, a dice manipulation game, because you're using your dice and then <laughs> pips on your dice to pick up tiles to put on your personal player board. This is when the um, terminology then, yeah. goes crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and that's the thing is that, I mean, I really enjoy games that employ a bunch of different mechanisms like that and, and to see the way that the designers can make them work together. Um, this is, to me, one of those amazing like not necessarily the easiest to learn but once you've got it you've got it and it is um it's got a lot of moving pieces for the price tag you can typically get it at yeah it's definitely one of the ones that shows you more potential like there's a lot of cheaper games that are cheap because they don't have as many components but that doesn't always give you that same feeling of of where board games are now um, a couple that yeah. came to mind for me is Code Names, which is um, yeah, kind of a, a f- game. yeah, a fun, a fun um, word association game that you can play with really large groups of people and and uh, 
makes it fun to have out at parties and it's kind of a jump in jump out for the most part so it it makes it work really well uh just one is another one that's a word association game yeah that that was one i was gonna mention um and that's like it's it's such a simple game but it's so it, it it's it's different but it's something that everybody's kind of familiar with um and that's one of the things I think it makes it a great game is it's really accessible. Well, I heard you mention game pieces and some games not having enough. Uh, I've been on the other end of that situation <laughs> where someone had built a they built this wonderful game and they kickstarted it, and the people were really excited to play it, and we gave it a shot. And there were so many pieces that I forgot what I was doing in the middle of this. We had little cubes of different colors. You had you had tokens and dots mm-hmm. and cards and this and that. And by the time it this this was like double entry bookkeeping with with tactile feedback. It did not See, really those say. are the games I enjoy most. <laughs> so, so the nice thing about board games is it can be as complex or as simple as you want them to be. Yes. Um, So when I'm thinking about, it's not necessarily how many components there are, but there's things like, I think Villainous is a good example. Like that is, there's some cool components to that and it's Disney based. And so people will automatically be like, oh man, this is really cool. Azul is another one like that. Splendor is another one like that. Mm -hmm. That just has cool feeling components and, and makes you feel like, even though it may be a bit more expensive, you're getting some, some cool things to play with. Kind of a, cl- a classic, but still pretty readily available and, and holds up today is Blockus. Um, and uh, it, it yeah. is readily available pretty much at any big box store and uh, is one of those that not everybody's heard of, but it has that, that table presence that gives you that little bit of extra that you're not used to. Yeah, and it's very Tetrisy. So it's like so again things that people are familiar with. So, so easy to easy to introduce, um, just in the way you or you know you place down your your pieces and try to make sure that mm-hmm. you're taking up the best amount of board space with the pieces you have left um, because you don't want to have a bunch of big pieces left in front of you. Um, so, so what I will say to anybody interested in getting into the hobby is. Um, BoardGameGeek.com is your best resource for kind of getting a better idea of whether a board game is something that you're going to be interested in, because not only do they have ratings and kind of give you an idea of what the mechanisms are, but they also talk about the weight of the board game on, I think it's a one to five scale. So it, it, it will, it will prevent you from getting to that situation like Alan was talking about, where if you find one that's weighted pretty heavily and you're still used to playing some fairly basic uh, board games that you may not be ready to jump that, to that uh, place yet, or you may be overwhelmed or it just may take you more time to learn, or you want to make sure that you have somebody who really knows the game when you first try to sit down with it. And so you may never it, ever want to play a game. That's yeah. Heavy. I mean, that's, that's, that's valid too. Not everybody wants to play a game that, I, that takes. <laughs> I really thought you were, up. you were talking about pounds, like how heavy it was. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, and often, sense. often those go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's where I was going with it in my mind. I was like, that seems pretty. <laughs> hey, 
I think you guys just said that I was too simple to handle complex games. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. But I, I am saying that, I mean, people know what they like. And if it's not to sit down for three hours and play a game that has a hundred moving pieces, that's yeah. okay. It's fine. Believe me. Not far wrong play play the game you enjoy playing because it's much more fun for everybody. Right. Um, I'm, I'm too simple to handle homonyms, so it'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not going to dig on any one game, but this it was uh, it, it was not for any of us really, including the guy who actually bought it on Kickstarter. We sat down and boy, we tried, but it just didn't get there for anyone. <laughs> I can also say that with a lot of these more complex games, they are now there are now more and more resources on YouTube, on Learn to Plays, where it may maybe hearing somebody talk about it while they're moving the pieces around um, will help people. That like I don't necessarily always do great with just rule books, so I, mm -hmm. I like to read the rule book and then watch the how to play yeah. because then all of that stuff that I read before kind of starts to click. Um, there is so, definitely. There's definitely truth to the idea that not all world books are created equal. Yes. Um, <laughs> I remember so. Little Towns, and you remember how well with that. So that, uh, that was fun. Yeah, Tiny Towns. <laughs> Tiny Towns, that's yeah. the one. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, it's fun, and it's not game, even that so. difficult of a game, but if you're not familiar with it, it may take a little bit longer. To yeah, I, I have never lost a game that badly in my life. <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> I, I tend to lose games pretty badly most of the time, so I'm just that's just oh well. Even though I enjoy them immensely, I lose. And for me, I always say there's two. There's often two levels to learning how to play a game, especially when you're talking about games that rely more on strategy than luck. Is that you have the element of learning the mechanics of the game and what the pieces are and how the rules work. And then there's the element of learning the strategy of the game. And oftentimes you can't do those simultaneously unless you're playing board games a lot and are really familiar with a lot mm -hmm. of the, the kind of obvious strategies that would apply to those types of mechanics. Um, so don't feel bad ever. If you, if you get through a game and you know how to play it at the end of the game, um, then you're doing you're doing pretty good, even if you score terribly. Because the next time you can play it, you'll be like, okay, now that I know the mechanics of the game, maybe I can start working on strategy. Because boy, howdy, those are two very different things. And, and there are definitely games out there that it's taken me a couple of sessions to even really understand all of the rules. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, just, <laughs> it just it just happens. Yeah, and that's it... why we call them learning games. And when it comes to strategy, I have a game story. Because some games, the strategy is not obvious. And there is a fantastic game. It's a s simple racing game. It's been around forever called Backgammon. And it's a lot of fun to play. <laughs> you roll dice and you race around the track. You know, it's all 100% pure luck. And I played that game, you know, with Ruthann every afternoon you know, maybe an hour at a time, and we, you know, and she won every time, every time. I never even understood what the strategy was. Where, you know what I'm saying? She won yeah. every it's, time. It's about where, you it's roll about where dice your pieces and race are around on the, the board track. and where to, where to make it. I, I'm sure that's it. It's just about <clears> making sure that you have the best potential with whatever dice come up to get pieces into your home. 
like that or your whatever it's called at the end. Oh, I know but there's a strategy. It's been a long time since I played I just uh, <clears throat> totally she, she got could it not find it. <laughs> yep. Go ahead, Carl. What were you gonna say? So, what I was gonna say is, and there's a lot to this. There's a, so, so I'm gonna lay a bunch of stuff out here. It may not go, may not go anywhere, but we'll see. Uh, why are these board games so dang expensive these days? That's what I want to know about. Uh, <laughs> and here are my numbers. And this is to me very interesting. Um, and again, I'm going to frame this in a D&D world. So when the box set for Dungeons and Dragons came out in 1974, it cost $10. Now, if a box set came out today accounting for inflation that costs the same amount inflation wise to 1974's $10 it would be $50 now a $50 box set for uh, you know getting to learn an RPG uh, that's pretty steep especially if it doesn't include dice or anything except the booklets alternatively Hero Quest released in 1989 was $25. And if it came out today, it would be around 48 bucks. Now, there's no way you're going to get a board game with HeroQuest production values today for under 50 bucks. I mean, it's got miniatures, tiny furniture, a board, dice, special cards. Like, so is it the distribution because RPG distribution has gone up? And board game distribution has gotten kind of smaller in-house compared to stuff like Milton Bradley and Hasbro that were doing most of the production of board games back in the day. Um, from what I understand, yeah, distribution eats a lot of the profits, like 50% of, of the publisher's profit, well, if I remember the number that I saw correctly. Well, I want to clarify really quickly. When you say the original D&D, are you talking about the Gygax Arneson three rule books? Or are you talking yes. about... Okay, those books were uh, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper folded in half and stapled together, it looks like at home. Um, what you wind up getting today is a perfect bound or a hard bound book with much higher production values. And those three books are not going to cost you... Uh, they're, they might cost you 50 bucks a piece to get those or 40, whatever, something like that. Um, if you still want to produce something with really low production values that you ran off on the copier at the library, then you can probably uh, probably sell those for cheap and make a profit. Yeah, I think he's comparing that I'm original saying, set to like the, the intro boxes for, that you can get now. I'm saying that sold for $10 in 1974. And... Mm -hmm. In today's money, that would be fifty dollars. Yeah, it so will what be. What I'm saying is, RPG box sets have gone down in price comparatively, while board mm -hmm. games have gone up in price comparatively. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misunderstood your question. That's my fault. That's all right. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure that, and I'm taking a wild guess here, that there are some bean counters who are responsible for making sure that they squeeze every dollar that they can out of this uh, this thing for corporate purposes, and they charge what the market will bear. Why it's why it's like that, I don't know. But if they're not doing that, they're doing their investors a disservice. 
one of the things that brought this up in my mind is we were talking on uh, Save or Die about the Black Box um, RPG rule set that came out in the early 90s. So this was during AD&D 2nd Edition, where an AD&D book cost about $25. Hmm. Um, and uh, you got to buy three. So it's $75 to get into AD&D 2nd Edition if you wanted to run the game at your house. The... The black box was presented as a board game, essentially. It had kind of board game style in the box where all the other D&D box sets were uh, portrait. It was a big board game box. And um, it only cost $20. So, like, it seemed like they were lowering the price of their product to kind of, like, compete in that board game space, which is just so funny to me because here we are today where you know, the board game space is the high dollar stuff and the RPG, you know, I mean, it's $50 for uh, a Wizards of the Coast uh, hardback, but that's not that different from 25 um, yeah. in 1991. Um, now, uh, I will say it, that production, production quality on board games has gone up too. Yeah. Right. Like cards are better, miniatures are better. Um, Except for Hero Quest. <laughs> well, you know, it has to be republished for that to happen. So, <laughs> no, no, I'm saying the production values for Hero Quest were outstanding. I mean, like the miniatures in Hero Quest are really good minis, in my opinion. But gotcha. That was just mostly just a mm -hmm. joke. But, but I mean, in general, <laughs> in general, oh, wow. the production right. of so, some mass market games have definitely gone down in production quality. Um, <laughs> so. I like I know that the games I had as kid as a kid that have been republished, a lot of those games are not nearly as nice. But oh, uh, for the most um, part, components have gotten better. If I had yeah. to guess, and I do, I would say that the correct answer to this is complex and multi-layered and boring to about ninety percent of the population. <laughs> yeah. And it um, is and it's all about market forces and distribution chains and how that's all changed. Yeah. With even larger now, uh, even larger things. There's no sound bite that will make anyone happy. I, <laughs> I wish I could do that. But I do think that um there is now a collecting hobby around board games. And I do remember when these fancy boxes that set up on your bookshelves were new and people were trying to wrap their heads around 50 or $60 for a board game. Um, but I think now there is definitely a collector's market in the quality of the mm -hmm. merchandise. Um, I mean, it's a desire to own and a desire to play. And the fact that it's expensive um, adds cachet. Well, I will also say this. I will t say that a, and this is what I was going to say, a $60 board game that you really, really enjoy is worth more than two $30 games that you don't really enjoy. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's, it's the same amount of money, but if you get more enjoyment out of having that one game than you do two other games, then. Oh, God forbid. You know. And again, it comes down to, to what you enjoy. I'm going to say if you have 300 board games, you're not playing them all. <laughs> you have one or two um, that you bring out we a lot. Do, we do have a few that we have not played at all. Um, yeah. But, um, and and there is there is reasons that we own this many. One is that we are three people who enjoy three very different types of games. So, you know, the games that I enjoy playing aren't necessarily the games that Devin and Liz enjoy playing. 
Um, so it's almost like we have three 100 game collections, which is still a lot. I understand yeah. that, but that is That's... part of the thing. If we all enjoyed the same games, our collection would be smaller. Um, and then we also run a game group and a convention, and we hold on to games that maybe we wouldn't necessarily keep, except for mm-hmm. the fact that they're really great games to have in in our possession for those things. But my guess so. is you've easy, easily played 300 board games. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. But we don't, don't it's I've not played, like, I mean, yes. I don't think I've played 300 absolutely. sessions of a board game. I, <laughs> I have, I have 100% played 300 different board games. We have played most <laughs> of the games in our collection. I think we I have maybe been. 20 that we haven't either played or we've played that we realized we played wrong that we need to play again um, with the correct. You know, that's the thing, right? You play a game and you're like, oh my gosh, we missed this rule. And it, you could tell where it would totally change the way. Yeah, that yeah. game score. So I haven't, I haven't have even played two. the board game 300 based on that baller film. <laughs> is there a board game based on that? Probably. I'm sure, there is. I have no idea actually, <laughs> but I just wanted to make the joke that didn't even go over. <laughs> See, I just assume that there's a that's an IP that somebody's made a board game of. Who knows? <laughs> there's an IP. I don't even like that movie. <laughs> Excuse me, guys. Uh, my cat's trying to be on the show. I'll be right back. <laughs> okay, so can I can I answer Carl's question now? <laughs> that was a lot all at once, and I was just like, I'm just gonna sit back and let this go because I can't get in on this action, <laughs> not with my poor throat as it is. Um, so, Dad touched on it a little bit on this collector side, but Carl, genuinely, I think. Other than the fact that it's a more limited run with more unique components than a lot of RPGs. RPGs are kind of more standardized. I mean, you get a, a book and a lot of them use the same kind of dice and things like that. But the truth of the matter is board games are expensive as they are is because people are willing to spend that much on them. Um, and people will upgrade their board games. They will buy a $70 board game and then spend another $100 on upgraded components to to deck out their board game. They want that that fancy cool set. It's it's completely because there's a demand for that that they're that expensive. People are wanting to pay that much for board games because of that collector mentality of getting those really cool components and that really cool uh, set of miniatures or whatnot. But there's also outliers because I would say that Grim Forest is very close to on the level of HeroQuest and is right at that fifty dollar MSRP. So it's kind of right in that line. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's not always yeah. the case. I would say that definitely we mentioned Forbidden Island. It has really good components for the price that you're getting it at. Um, dice, dice Forge is another one. That yeah. For, for a $40 game, you've got dice that you can take the faces off and put new faces on and um, really good gameplay in a $40 box. Yeah. So it's always fun to discover one of those games. and You're just like, oh, how do they get so much value out of this? Uh, game and it makes you question, you know, like, well, maybe part of it is that they're not upcharging you as much as other people are, but some of it may just be that they're having a bigger production run, or they, you know, yeah. if they if they well, were able to yeah, make more games up front and lower the cost per game, then they can sell the the games cheaper. Um, that's <clears> the thing. <throat> but another thing about board games as collectibles is that since a lot of board games have limited runs. People are willing to invest $60 on a board game that there might only be 
so many copies of because good chance in a few years down the line that board game may be worth a hundred bucks i mean look how much you know copies of hero quest are going for now i mean it's definitely something that is collectible and is an investment for some people it just struck me on the uh, topic of pricing that there may be some magic numbers that they want to hit for psychological reasons Selling something for $14.36, because that's what you can do it at, is kind of silly. Why not go ahead and sell it for 20 or some a multiple of 10 that you can do this for and not have these, these little weird <clears throat> uh, price points there? If it's going to be, say, a $41 game, well, hey, let's see if we can't get 50 bucks out of this instead. Uh, I wonder how much that plays in, if at all. Anybody got some brains on this? Yeah, I have. I have no idea. I think. I mean, obviously, you're gonna go up instead of down when you're trying to get to a number. But yeah, right. um, well, you're always gonna inflate at the front end because you wanna you wanna hit people with sales and still make money. Um, so that's always well, your MSRP well, is always gonna account for the ability to put it on sale and still make a profit off of it. Oh, remember 1995? That's great because that's not twenty dollars. That's 1995. <laughs> So um, there is a great blog on board game business. Um, Stonemeyer, Jamie Stegmeyer runs Stonemeyer Games, does a blog where he often talks about the business end of board games. Um, so if you were to go to Stonemeyer Games and look at their blog, there may be some some at least one perspective of answers to some of these questions if if people are, are super interested. I have no answers, only questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, would, I would say, I mean, he's, he's in the, he is in yeah. the publishing business. No, yeah, he yeah. is a yeah. super, Well, know. and I mean, <laughs> the truth the is. The most so. useful thing on this subject that anybody has said yet. <laughs> Go listen to this guy who knows what he's talking Yeah. About. <laughs> the truth is, the answer, the answer as it is with anything is it's that cost because people are willing to pay that amount. Um, I know the answer. <laughs> it's 42. <laughs> Back to 42, are we? <laughs> I'd buy a board game for $42 in a second. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll sell you one for 45 Hey, you know, 50 <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, if I get a good game on a, a good deal on a board game I, I love, I'm probably going to buy it. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. But I have definitely paid full price for games that I know I love and found it worth, especially when I'm supporting a local game store. Okay, that's, that's the big thing for me. Yeah, that's another thing about board games is that their distribution is is much more limited than a lot of other forms of media. Like you can go to um a lot of stores and find books or DVDs on sale, but there's only really specific ones. It's growing, but there's really only specific local stores that aren't specifically dedicated to some form of tabletop gaming that carry board games. The size of the games themselves can also play a, a, uh, a part in the cost because of just shipping. If you're shipping an oversized package that won't fit neatly in a stack of N on a pallet, that's going to wind up costing you more, and you're going to wind up shipping basically empty air if they don't stack neatly, and you're paying the same price. So most uh, I, I was a truck driver for a number of years, and I've seen a little bit of the business of moving things around the country. And it doesn't matter how much something weighs, as long as it's not going to put you over gross. 
it's about how much volume you can put on this particular truck and get that moved. And it's going to, they're going to charge you the same amount of gas or for diesel, however much it's going to be to get you there. Um, so yeah, the, the smaller board games that you can pack into little bitty crates, uh, you're going to be able to ship them more cheaply. And if you're going to have something that takes up a whole lot of airspace with not much in it, yeah, we'll, 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 truck that all over the country for you too but it's going to cost you a lot more and that'll probably come out of well not the publisher's wallet it'll come out of yours no i mean board game companies one of the things that they do is they'll take a game that will fit in a in a fairly small box and put it in a larger box so they are paying all of that for air because that shelf space that that larger box takes up sells more well, no they're them. not you are you're paying that they're okay, not fine, but, <laughs> <laughs> but. But, I mean, that is a thing in the industry. But they're, okay. they're finding it worth it because they're getting they're getting more people to buy it because it is taking up more, more wow. real estate on, on a board game store's shelf. And people are seeing it. Yeah, there is... Uh, it takes up a lot of space on my shelf, too, which I don't love. To get into the headspace of board gamers, um, you have to understand that a lot of weight is put on box art and how it looks on a shelf. Um, yeah. In addition to just, you know, there is there is definitely a judging a board game by the cover uh, mentality with a lot of board gamers where that's because truthfully, you don't usually get a lot of information about the board game on the box. It's more of a conveying an aesthetic and a theme and giving you an idea of how long it plays and and stuff like that but it's usually pretty bare bones you have to do your research outside of what's on the box to figure out what the game really is well in the words of uh, a good friend of mine i can be trained and i have learned something here today well that actually um i think goes again with none of us uh necessarily being in distribution of, of any of these products but that actually speaks towards why maybe these books have not gone up as much as the board game is because of shipping i, I mean we've been shipping stacks of books and that's going to be a lot less than shipping various sizes of board games all the time yeah they're dense yeah and they're of uniform size easily a component i don't really know <laughs> It makes yeah, sense. Again, there, there are much better resources than us. Yeah. What yeah. <laughs> we've determined by this entire conversation, this is a very layered issue that we don't know any information about, even one of the layers. <laughs> you know a board game I like? Here's a board game I like. Have you, any of y'all ever played Dungeon! Exclamation mark? No. I have. I have. <laughs> I've heard of Dungeon! It, but I've not Dungeon! It. Dungeon exclamation mark is is a, a, a parlor game of Dungeons and Dragons that was being developed concurrently with the original board game. And it, most people just call it Dungeon. They forget the exclamation mark. But I say that's important. It stands out. Yeah. Um, uh, or you could just say it really enthusiastic. Yeah. Dungeons! My kids. My kids are asleep. <laughs> <laughs> So dungeon exclamation mark, I have uh, four or five different versions of this game. And it's pretty much the same game every time. But there's a version that's my favorite. And it's, so here's how dungeon works. It's not, it's also not a great game like HeroQuest, but it's one of my favorite games. It's the best game ever like HeroQuest. I mean, it's not great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, 
you roll some dice, you move your little pawn in this big laid out dungeon with all these little colored rooms. Each color represents a different level of monster, a different level of the dungeon. And you go to a room, flip over a card, and it's a monster, and you roll two six-sided dice and you try to beat the number on the card. If you beat it, you get its treasure and you draw a treasure card. Now, there's a version where the board, the rooms are big enough for the card to sit in. And it changes the whole game. Because if you have to go to the specific room X to find the magic sword, the entire game has an exploration element that is lost when you're just drawing from a single deck of cards over to the side of the board. And whatever room you go to next, you're getting that top card. So that was a cool story about a yeah. dungeon. It's, it's, also, it's also a cheaper game if it's something that, you know, you, you might be interested in. doesn't have that. Well, the point is you have to go buy the 1982 version. Sir? Of the new dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go to eBay. <laughs> Turns out the way to get people into hobby is being like, you know, you have to have this very specific version yeah. from... Wow. 30 years ago. <laughs> I, I, do have, I do have one more thing I would like to say, speaking to that, um, in order to get into the hobby thing. If you're interested in board games and you don't, you don't necessarily have um, a board game collection and it's been a while since you played board games, uh, if you have a local board game store, oftentimes they will have a space in their store where they have open box board games that you can try out. So that's a great way. To, to find out if you enjoy some of the more modern games and what about those games you enjoy in a space where people can help you. Um, board game cafes are kind of um, popping up all over the place too. And then there are also look on Facebook for board game groups in your area because I would definitely suggest before you go and just start buying games off of shelves without knowing a lot about them to try some out first and try to find a venue in order to do that. And um, especially in almost any large city, you'll be able to do that. Well, I mean, by the very nature, <clears throat> by the very nature, board games are not something that you want to collect and play solo. I, I don't think I can't think of too many solo board games. Oddly enough, I was just talking to Sarah about how I want to do a month of solo board games. Okay, <laughs> so but you're actually you, doing more and more. Sir, <laughs> you know way more about this than me. But if I had to guess, yeah. if yeah, God yeah, came yeah. down and said, "Okay, Alan, bet your soul and tell me, are there more, <laughs> are there more uh, single player board games or multiplayer board games?" I would say, well, I, I would vote for B. I would put my check and call it. Well, there definitely are. Well, you would be right. But, <laughs> yeah, that, that is not an incorrect statement. But more well, and more games are either... that nobody wants to play solo board games. <laughs> you know so, why? Because well, that's been going on forever, man. Ever. <laughs> People play chess by themselves. I mean, they're weirdos. Like, those, <laughs> those people like need intervention. I like how chess is the one that you win with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's a game that's really weird to play by yourself. But people do it. Okay. <laughs> yes. But yeah, more and more game companies are putting solo gameplay in their games, either by using like some sort of cards that simulate another player, or especially like cooperative games. Almost any cooperative game can be played solo. So, um, but yeah, it's becoming more and more prevalent. You know a game I dislike a lot? I really hate. It's the worst game ever. 
Well, is it that HeroQuest? <laughs> no, no. It, it, it's Werewolf. <laughs> werewolf, that game I suggested to people earlier. <laughs> okay. Which werewolf you are you talking cards about? For it. Yeah, it's a werewolf. You print off cards and then someone's the werewolf. And people decide <laughs> who to kill. Well, it turns out every time I play this game, all my friends and family decide to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess <laughs> I don't think you can spend your whole life just trolling everybody you love <laughs> and then play werewolf. So, with them. so my favorite story regarding werewolf is there's a lot of different versions, but Sarah is notoriously always the werewolf. Um, it's stupid. <laughs> it's really fun because I was in a situation where everybody in the game was ready to vote me out. And I didn't really care because I wasn't too invested, but they were ready to vote me out. And I counter-argued with the fact that they were missing the biggest clue is that Sarah is always the werewolf. And they voted me out, and I wasn't the werewolf, and Sarah was the werewolf. And I just, I can't understand why they can't figure this out after the many years that we've been playing these stupid games. We, we sat down this is, to play. This is why I drastically dislike social deduction games, because I always... <laughs> And I'm terrible at lying. Uh, if I, I remember right, why, I don't get picked more often. If I remember right, I did play one game of that, and it seemed to go incredibly quickly. I mean, it, it was over and done in like five minutes. Um, okay. if you just, yeah, if you want something... Yeah, I can also just... last for hours. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of like Flux in that way. You're never really sure. <laughs> Flux is a card game that's a pretty inexpensive as well. That could last anywhere from five minutes to three hours. <laughs> nice. We sat down to play Werewolf. At an early Evercon, we sat down to play Werewolf, and we all had our cards dealt out. It was the very first round, so nobody had any strong inclination, you know, either way. And everybody was kind of arguing about what to do. And my friend Meredith said, "Wait a second, we could kill Carl." <laughs> <laughs> Again, like you do, you just kill yeah. Carl. <laughs> yeah, but you gotta realize, I, I, I Barney Stinson people quite a lot. Like I just troll my friends. That's awful. I'm a terrible a person. Terrible I deserve, person. I deserve every ounce of this. Uh, <laughs> but then, like all of my friends were like, "Yeah, we could just murder Carl," and so they killed me. And I wasn't the werewolf, but you know, they still felt like they won. <laughs> Best story of the night, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <sighs> All right. I think we need to wrap this up because we're getting a little punchy. Uh, <laughs> we started a little punchy, too, so... <laughs> yep. It's all that tea. It's getting better and better. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, I, I will say this has been a fun discussion. It kind of stayed on topic well not really at least we st stuck with board games the entire time um but i want to thank you all so much for listening we'll be back again in a couple of weeks for our book club that we encourage you to come and of course we're also here any monday night just hanging out and chatting um but uh we'll be back in a couple of weeks for our book club and it's a it's a cory doctorow book what is it dad uh little brother Little brother. Um, yeah, and, and also, uh, Megan, next week we have guests for our podcast, Inspired on oh. Reality. We have Pex and VB Weird. 
Awesome. I did not know that. And we are going um, to be discussing Kickstarters. Swords and, oh. Swords and Wizardry Kickstarters. See, so next week, a real Xbox, even though it's not specific to, to board games, it might actually overlap some with some of that information. So yeah. if you actually want to know stuff about industry from somebody who knows stuff about industry, tune in next week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ooh, what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, that wraps us up. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll uh, get with you next time when we're chatting and recording and talking about some other nonsense. Bye. 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 Goodbye. You have been listening to the Related to Geeks podcast, recorded February 3rd, 2020, on the Monday Night Inspired Unreality Open Game Chat, held at Tanker's Tavern on Discord. For more about our geeky family, visit relatedtogeeks.com. For more information about Inspired Unreality, join Gamer Plus, a social network for gamers, at gamerplus.org. The music for this show is Mosaic by Harry Lurie from the NJHB CD, Stinger.